0: Today's guest has appeared in hundreds of television, radio, print, and online features about mental health. His TEDx talk about the stranger who saved his life has been viewed millions of times and is among the most watched TEDx talks ever. As host of both so-called normal podcast and living Well podcast, he has interviewed over hundreds of experts, celebrities, and public figures about mental health. Welcome to the show, Mark. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me.
1: I'll say right off the top, we were talking before you started recording about the background noise that I'm getting. Hopefully, your listeners don't get too much of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I hope so too. And I hope they don't get too much of my my nose blockage issue also. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's okay. We're all imperfect, so we're going to do our best and hopefully still have a meaningful conversation.
0: Yes, I hope so too. Um, thank you so, so much for joining me today on this episode of Talk. I really appreciate your presence and your time today. Um, I would love to, you know, say thank you for using your story and your experience to make changes in the mental health world. You have been doing a very awesome job being an advocate for mental health so far. Um, Is it possible for you to, you know, please just share about your story, you know, of you as a teenage boy, been overwhelmed by depression and anxiety, and your experience on that bridge at that fateful night.
1: You know, I, I first became suicidal, or people I should say, first found out that I was suicidal when I was only 12 years old. I think that I'd been uh, struggling for years before that. I only really found that out through the process of writing my book. You know, my father left us when I was uh, very young. We moved into a home where my stepfather surrounded us with this toxic masculinity, where it wasn't okay uh, for boys especially to express any kind of emotion at all. Mm. Uh, So by the time I got to be uh, about 12 years old, I felt like I had no way of expressing all of these really intense emotions inside me. And in my TEDx talk, I tell two stories. One was uh, my very first or one of the earlier uh, expressions of my suicidality. It was all very Uh, vague, and I didn't really have any particular plans or anything like that, but I had this urge, this strong urge to escape. And then the second story that I tell actually took place several years later, uh, about three years later, uh, after I had been bouncing in and out of the mental health care system, in and out of hospital, uh, Mm. at psychiatric wards for my repeated, increasingly dangerous suicide attempts. Uh, it was like it was becoming a, a a maladaptive coping mechanism for me or almost an addiction of sorts of trying to escape the pain that I was feeling in my life. Uh, and that's what brought me to the wrong side of a railing uh, of a bridge in my hometown late one night where I just felt like by that point, I was completely helpless. I was hopeless. Nothing would ever get better for me. Uh, and I fully intended on ending my life on that bridge that night and would have if it were not for a complete stranger uh, who saw me, who stopped and talked to me, and then eventually, in fact, grabbed me and pulled me off of the edge of the bridge. He saved my life. Mm-hmm. Really, it was from that moment forward that I realized I needed to be like that stranger, uh, the, the guy who, who had people's backs, who reached out and saved people's lives. And that's really what I've been doing ever since. Uh, so I owe everything to that stranger that night who uh, not only saved my life in a moment, but actually gave me a model uh, gave me a, a a purpose for the rest of my life.
0: Having that experience and using that experience to to change the lives of other people out there who are you know going through similar situations, I really find that very um, inspiring. Thank you so much for what you do. Um, well,
1: thank you. And and you know, I think that really started uh, for me after that uh, uh, bridge attempt. Mm. I wanted to open up about my own lived experience. Uh, And I was still struggling myself, mind you, but I also knew by that point because I'd been in and out of hospital so many times and I grew up in a small town where everybody knew everybody else's business. That's how small towns go. Yeah. Uh, so I knew that other people were struggling with these kinds of things too. Mm. But I, I mean, I met some of them in the hospital, in the in the basement psychiatric ward of the hospital, uh, where everybody knew each other was struggling, but then you would leave, go back out into the so-called normal world, mm. and nobody would talk about these types of things. So I knew that other people were struggling, and I, I wanted to talk to my peers about it. My school at the time, my high school, uh, said that we can't talk about about those kinds of things. Uh, Because if you talk about suicide, it gives people the idea to go out and do it, which is a myth, that is false, that's been proven wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, one of the most uh, uh, effective protective mechanisms we have to save people from suicide is talking openly because it lets them open up about what they're feeling anyway, instead of hiding. And as soon as I started to do that, the school told me no, but I did it anyway. (laughs) I went and wrote a a letter to my local newspaper, an an editorial article. It was published the next morning. uh, And then there were television news cameras at my school asking why it wasn't okay to talk about mental health. Uh, When that happened, when I opened up about my story in such a big way, it had the exact opposite effect of what I most feared. I, I feared that I would be isolated more. That people finding out that I was sick and that I was struggling in this way would make them not want to be around me anymore. Mm -hmm. And the opposite thing happened. It actually gave people permission, even though I don't think they needed it to begin with, but it seemed to give people permission to open up about their stories too. And that's Mm -hmm. what kept me doing it ever since, is that every time I talk about my own story, it's not about me. It gives people permission to tell their story too. So that's Mm -hmm. why I do this work.
0: Yes, that's good. And leading up to that moment in your life, um, can you tell me about how it was like, you know, growing up in a broken home and the mental health challenges that you had, you know, that you experienced while um, you were growing up also?
1: Initially, you know, growing up, it, it was just not typical. It wasn't normal. It wasn't expected to talk about your feelings uh, mm. because nobody really did. I mean, we, we uh, were growing up in an economically depressed small town. A lot of people were jobless. There were people who had uh, addictions and poverty and all sorts of other problems. And there is a bit of a sense of, uh, well, everybody has it hard. So why don't complain? <laughs> you know, you just <laughs> just get through and it builds character and all this stuff. And, yeah. and that, you know, to a certain extent, that's not entirely incorrect, uh, but mm. it's not very helpful uh, when you're struggling, uh, mm. especially as a young kid. So that, that's how it was initially. Um, it just wasn't it wasn't comfortable to talk about uh, how you were feeling. Then later, when I moved in, when my family moved in uh, to my stepfather's house, it actually became quite shameful and wrong and was actively discouraged uh, to speak openly about your vulnerability and how you were feeling, because that meant you were weak uh, or it meant you weren't a real man. You know, that's that's one of the most uh, frequent things that my stepfather said to me was to be a man, to suck mm-hmm. it up. Uh, and that was his generation. That was his own upbringing, of course, that he mm-hmm. was then uh, inflicting onto us. So, you know, that's when it became, uh, through, I think, a, a conditioning effect or a training, a learning effect that if I did express any kind of vulnerable emotion, uh, it would be met with greed, with shame, with grief rather, with shame, with guilt, um, with a negative, uh, response. So I, that's when I started to learn not to open up, to actually choose to hide, to choose to stay quiet, uh, because it made other people comfortable. Uh, so, I, you know, I think those were the two dynamics that I experienced as a, as a young man. Uh, uh, and that was combined with the fact that nobody really had very much conversation about mental health anyway. Nobody really knew how to talk about these kinds of issues because nobody did. Nobody I think was brave enough to just be wrong, just, just <laughs> say it, be wrong and learn. Uh, I think we were all just scared.
0: Dear friend, you can grow your personal and business brand by creating a strong network through podcasting, create real human connections, have the ability to share your story and interesting point of view. To get started, you can make use of the special offer for friends of this podcast, which is on kitcaster.com T C A mural, K-I-T-C-A-S-T-E-R dot C-O-M slash r-r-o-r the link and further instruction or details will be found in the show notes for this episode thank you don't forget to follow us on apple Podcasts, spotify or google Podcasts, or whatever platform you listen to this on thank you yeah and that's why it's, it's very important for us to create an environment where everyone is comfortable to you know express our feelings and also you know um talk about these issues especially when it comes to you know mental health or when one is having suicidal thoughts or having just some challenges that um that needs to attend attended to. yeah yeah awesome. it,
1: it's it's so critical to be open you know awareness and talking is an action uh, because when you increase mental health awareness you mm-hmm. increase the level of comfort that people have with the topic it increases help-seeking behavior, which means that it it increases the likelihood that if people are feeling the feelings that we're talking about right now, if they've heard other people talking about it outside of their own head, then they're more likely to actually open up and they're more likely uh, to go and talk to their doctor or to find a therapist or to look up online um, some self-help strategies. There's lots of different routes to recovery. Different people need different things. Mm. But the key first step is actually recognizing that you need help and then trying to actually do
0: something about it yes but what do you do in a, in a society where everyone has to act normal like you know your book your memoir is called so-called normal and you talked about you know your town where you came from where everyone is in the basement of a psychiatric ward uh, you know going through some issues but when you come out you have to act normal what do you do in a world where it is expected of you to act normal how do you you know express yourself then I think an alternate
1: title for my book could have been normal fiction uh, because there's no <laughs> such thing as normal. And this is what I found in, in my work since then, you know, having talked to hundreds and hundreds of uh, people, and you mentioned already celebrities and public figures and mm. and researchers, policymakers, just everyday people that you've never heard of. Mm. What I found out is that we're all going through very similar journeys. We might not have the same kind of dramatic points as I've had, but but your own dramatic points are dramatic for you. uh, So that there's no such thing as normal. This is a statistical fiction that has been pushed on us primarily by social media, certainly in recent years, uh, but throughout all of media, this idea of keeping up with the neighbors or why does everybody else seem to have their stuff together uh, and I don't, well it turns out that they probably don't either that yeah. we're all just figuring this out as we go mm-hmm. uh, but it's part of that narrative in our head where we think that everybody else has it either better than us or has something that we don't or or uh, has figured out the secret to life mm-hmm. and they haven't either so that's mm-hmm. why i think it's it, you know we're all in these Um, isolated little bubbles feeling like we're the only person who's ever felt this way uh, and we're not (laughs) that in fact most people have felt this way and that's the importance of having these conversations is that it helps people to realize that it's like we're all in our own little private cubicles in humanity uh, and we can't see over the top to see that other people are lonely too well why don't we all just be lonely together and then it turns out the loneliness starts to go away
0: that's very true In your memoir, So-Called Normal, um, you share the vital and the triumphant story of perseverance and recovery. And this is something that is very, very important, you know, for people out there or, you know, for generally when someone's going through challenges, one wants to know if there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And this is your book, your memoir, uh, it's a light at the end of the tunnel for a lot of people. So can you tell me about your book and your journey towards healing and recovery?
1: Well, one of the uh, many, I had many motivations for writing this book, but one of the primary ones was that after I did the TED Talk, um, I frequently heard from people who were still very actively struggling with their depression, um, either saying that mine must not have been that bad. Uh, Mm. Because if I recovered, then maybe my struggle uh, was less valid uh, than theirs was. That's a common, um, though inaccurate, of course, reaction. Um, Or how could I possibly know what depression was like if I was able to recover? Mm. And embedded in that is a stigma, a stigma that that we self-stigmatize. It's a stigma that we pick up from our society uh, that people with mental illnesses don't recover, that your Mm -hmm. brain is broken, that it's just part of who you are. It's part of your identity. That Mm. is false. Uh, It is not. Um, Mental illnesses are often transient. The reasons why people get stuck in those places and can't seem to get out is because we haven't designed systems to help them get out. Uh, That you you can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, so to speak, if you don't have any bootstraps. We haven't been having uh, the kinds of conversations that allow people to bootstrap their way out of these experiences of mental health uh, problems and illnesses. Um, that's why I felt like it was important to tell the whole context of my story, that it was really hard, it was really bad at times, but yeah. I was able to get through anyway. Uh, I was able to get through with a combination of luck, uh, of a patchwork system, of finding people who could help me with certain parts of my life, uh, and, and of grit and perseverance, I think, in many ways. Um, and that's what I think people need to realize is the realistic picture of recovery. Sometimes we come into this, and I think it's not a productive way to think about recovery, which is that if I take a medication uh, or, or if I get to the end of this year, then everything will get better and I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. That's not what recovery is. If you're dealing with depression right now, yes, it's absolutely hard. No, it's not going to go away overnight. My recovery, I didn't even realize I was recovering, that it, was, that it took more than a decade, in fact, uh, until I was and that's okay because that's how recovery works. We need, to real, we need to add a realistic lens to what recovery is for many people. And it doesn't mean uh, suddenly and always being happy. Uh, mm-hmm. It means that there's a lot of work that goes into it uh, and that you have to have agency in that work. You have to be an active participant in your recovery. Your mental illness isn't your fault, but your recovery is your responsibility. Uh, and there are things you can do uh, actively to help in your recovery. So, you know, that was one of the um, main objectives for me in my book was me just trying to figure that out as I went, as most of us do, what yeah. works for me, what doesn't. Uh, the the um, backslides, the relapses, the mm. hopeless moments all along the way, those, those come up all the time. Mm. That's okay too. But I think the through line is that you keep going. You might take a step back every now and then, but on the whole, if you zoom out a little bit, Uh, you're moving forward. You're always moving forward. Uh, And you don't realize how far you've come sometimes until you have that opportunity to glance back. So that's what I tried to do with the book, was to give a a realistic picture of uh, what recovery often looks like.
0: Yeah. And the the system or the path towards recovery is not, you know, um, the same for everyone. You mean it could be unique, right? And it's not a very quick journey, but a very uh, slow, steady journey that one has to embark on.
1: As it should be. I mean, it took you this many years to get the way you are right now. Why would you think you're going to change overnight? Hmm. I think we have this culture of immediacy, this belief that everything needs to be better now. Well, that's not actually how the brain learns and adapts to anything. Uh, I tried to show with my descent into mental illness that even that uh, took a process uh, of, uh, of acclimation to a toxic environment, uh, of uh, a compounding effect of not having effective coping mechanisms or the language for my experience. A variety of factors played into my individual struggle as is usually the case with people who struggle. Mm-hmm. But even that is, a, pro- is, a, is a, a narrative or a process as well. So I think we need to, to give ourselves, um, we need to be gentler with ourselves and give mm-hmm. ourselves more time to realize that this is going to take some work and, and that's okay. It's supposed mm-hmm. to, we should always be developing.
0: Yes. Yes. And I also love the fact I said, there could be relapses on the way once you just, you know, pick ease yourself up and keep on going, like keep on making progress.
1: And I'm of the view of, well, what else are you going to do? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, um, having myself stood on the edge of a bridge and, and a number of other, um, Uh, instances where I was close to ending my life. Hmm. I think now, yeah, you know, that was always an option for me, but why would I jump to that now? It's like, yeah, I could fail or I could fail. I could kill myself or I could just fail and move on and to me it's like well okay let's try that what do I got to lose why not keep trying and figuring it out as we go and if if, if everything falls apart if it doesn't work that's okay if mm-hmm. it's really hard that's okay too we mm-hmm. can try something else mm-hmm. there are you know I think it's one of the lies that your depression tells you when you have depression mm-hmm. uh, is that you've tried everything you haven't uh, because as many different therapists are out there are there is there are as many different types of therapy as there are types of therapists. Mm. There are many different types of medication if you want to go that route. That doesn't work for everybody, but it does work for some. Mm. Uh, And there are many other non-traditional, or I should say non-Western types of recovery as well. Mm. Um, Some people, just it's just luck, (laughs) to be be honest. (laughs) It's the most unclinical thing in the world. Mm. But sometimes you just fast forward, uh, it seems like, 10 years, and you're different. And that's okay too, because I think what one of the phenomena that's at the core uh, of people getting stuck in depression is partly at least that they're clinging to something that isn't working anymore, that isn't fitting anymore. They're trying to be somebody on something that they're not. Instead, if we were to let go just a little bit of that control, which is counterintuitive when you have depression because you feel like your life is out of control already. Yeah. But if you just let go a little bit to that clinging, uh, you'd be surprised what your life can actually turn into.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's very true. Just let's go a little bit, just release, yeah. I, know, I, was, I was watching your, your TEDx video, and I was so touched and moved by how you, you know shared the story in the video. I would advise everyone, I'll put the, um, the link in the show notes of this episode, as well as to your book also, and I would advise everyone to watch the TEDx talk, and also buy the book and read the book also. Um, in, in, in the video you talked about, you know, you asked, Yourself, a question that fateful night, you asked. You said, "Should I hang in there for one more day?" When that when can when that kind of question comes to your mind, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with you know mental issues and suicidal thoughts?
1: When I was on that bridge, like my other uh, instances of suicide, it's it's sort of the toxic uh, nexus of feelings when you feel hopeless and helpless. If I you know I felt hopeless that nothing would ever get better. You know mm-hmm. but when I asked myself that question. Why would I hang on if nothing's ever going to get any better, if nothing's ever going to change? And then the helplessness piece is that there's nothing I can do to make it better. It's a lack of agency. When those two things come together, nothing will ever change and there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, That's where suicide lives, I think, um, among other uh, mental health struggles. Mm -hmm. And where I think that comes from, you know, one of the most enduring um, images or ideas from that TED Talk was this idea that I presented of the perceptual collapse. When your mind collapses in around you, it becomes dark and hardened and calcified. It suffocates you. It becomes tight in there. It doesn't let you see uh, the hope that's outside of you. It doesn't let you uh, realize that you actually do have choices. You actually can do things that improve your life. Um, So that's where I think we need to lean into the, the cognitive dissonance, to the discomfort of recovery. There's a there's a sanitized version I think of recovery that it's all about self care and bubble baths and feeling good and uh, you know good vibes only all this stuff recovery is hard friggin work <laughs> it's yeah. you have to push yourself you have to challenge yourself to think differently. Um, it's one of my favorite things now. I try to be, to, to, try to be wrong at least once a day because mm-hmm. when you're wrong, when you yeah. realize, oh, I missed that, yeah. <laughs> then you're learning. Then you're changing. That's, That's where true. growth happens. But when you're depressed, when you're collapsed into that place, you're, you're blocking out any other information that doesn't fit your very tiny view of the world, that the world is awful, uh, and that you no longer belong in it. You have to be able to be uncomfortable enough uh, to let yourself grow beyond that point.
0: I would love to go back to you know your small town, that small town again. You know where everything seems normal outside. You said so. You know even though you are going through a lot, you you are normal out on the outside at least. Um, so I would love to ask a question like for, for parents or for concerned friends or for family members out there. Like, how can it help someone who is having some mental health challenges, but seems to be normal on the outside, that seems to be smiling or sunshine on the outside, but that deep down inside, they're having you know, so much darkness and trouble. How can loved ones help?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's uh, one of the things that's one of the sayings that has resonated with me over the years is to check in on your strong friends. It's always the ones that you never suspect, as they say. And you know, I think that it all starts with uh, developing a relationship. You know, I get this asked this question a lot: How do you help somebody with a mental illness? Or even more. Um, esoterically, how do you help the mentally ill? As though the mentally ill in the singular are a separate group from the rest of us. They're over there and we're over here. Well, guess what? We are them. There is no us and them, that we're all uh, human. So if you wanna know how to help somebody with a mental illness, look in the mirror. Look at and ask yourself, what do you need? Uh, mm-hmm. to be happy to be healthy to be engaged you need connection you need love you need uh, to know that you're a part of something bigger than yourself you need access to healthcare to housing to good employment to a job so i think that everything uh, that we do to help people who are struggling with their mental health yeah. needs to start with first finding out who they are and what they want building mm-hmm. that connection with them what is the actual pain point that they're that they're experiencing uh, and until you can develop that trusting relationship with that person, then nothing else is going to stick anyway. You can give them all the pills you want. You can bring them to the psych ward like me. You can do all the therapy you want, but if, if they're not willing to do it, uh, then nothing is going to get in. And that applies to medication as well. Mm. So to spend time to build connection, to develop the relationship. That's what that stranger did for me in that few minutes that really, that's all it was that we were together on that bridge that night when he saved my life, he didn't talk to me. Like a doctor or a clinician we don't have you don't have to fix somebody mm. who is struggling with their mental health. Mm. Uh, I needed to know that I had somebody who was willing to see me to see the real me, and that's what that stranger did for me that night in getting to know me and and creating space for me uh to talk with him and to get to know him.
0: I mean we so just have to you know know the person, create a connection, a relationship with such people or such a person, and see how it could be of help, yeah.
1: We have to. And when you do that, when you ask the right questions, when Mm you uh, notice that somebody might be struggling, for example, when you notice other people's emotions, depending Mm -hmm. on the culture that you're in, uh, but it seems pretty common across all cultures in some, to some degree or another, we get uncomfortable by other people's difficult emotions. Mm -hmm. So we often don't inquire you know we wonder if it will offend them if we ask Uh, we wonder if it'll you know give them ideas that they didn't have if they'll get angry we get anxious i think at least here in the in western countries anyway we get anxious about asking people if they need help if they're okay Mm -hmm. Uh, because i think we're afraid that at the end of the day we don't know what to do we Mm -hmm. don't know what to say we fear our own lack of knowledge our own lack of competence put that aside, put your ego aside for a few minutes. It's okay to not know how to help them. Mm -hmm. That can be helpful too. You're allowed to say to them, you look like you're having a really hard time. Do you want to talk about it? Even if you don't know what to say, you can say, wow, I don't know what to say (laughs) because they don't need you to fix them. They need to know that you care. And by asking the question, are you doing all right? Do you want to talk? That shows them that you care.
0: Yes, just show them that you care. That's good. Yes, yes. You know, um, sometimes all of these things that we go through internally also tells on the body. So can you educate me on how depression and anxiety impacts our body?
1: Certainly, you know, we know that um, uh, particularly for people who have long-term depression and anxiety, it's extremely taxing uh, Mm. on your body. Uh, You know, uh, use anxiety because it's such a salient uh, example. Depression and anxiety are very often uh, co-diagnosed. They Mm. they often go together. Uh, and you can imagine, you know, it might feel good if you run on a treadmill for 20 minutes, if you like to exercise. Right. Uh, and that's the same for good stress on the body. Stress and anxiety, uh, to a degree, can be motivating. Uh, but then imagine that you've been stuck on that treadmill uh, all day. And then maybe you've been chained to that treadmill for two weeks, and you can't get off that treadmill, and nobody will let you off. Then you can imagine how how taxing that is on your body physiologically. Uh, And this is exactly what we see in people with anxiety disorders, with depression as well, they're much more likely uh, to have a lowered immune system, they'll get more colds and flus, Uh, there's higher co-occurrence of of asthma, of diabetes, uh, of cancers, of a number of other uh, physiological disorders. Uh, When you're depressed, the physical feeling of being depressed itself, anyway, uh, you're often tired and lethargic. Uh, It's difficult to get out of bed uh, sometimes Mm -hmm. in the morning. Um, It can be confounded with the fact that maybe you're too tired to get out of bed, but you're also really anxious, too. So you have this tight feeling in your chest, and your mind is racing as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we are our bodies, right? Our, Our body is is just a a life support system for our brain. Uh, So of course we're gonna feel uh, when something goes sideways uh, in our mind, of course we're gonna feel it in our body as well. Uh, So that's why I think, even if you don't want to do the medication and psychotherapy route, if that's not your thing, that's okay too, uh, mm-hmm. because we know that there's great impacts of, of good nutrition, of physical fitness, uh, of uh, a f- more physiological approach to recovery. Uh, these these are st- strong have strong positive links uh, between exercise and depression recovery, for example. Um, so that's another way in uh, if people want to feel better in their mind. Start to improve your body instead. Take a different uh, entry point uh, to to recovery, uh, and I think that that you'll see a lot of positive results from that.
0: Well, are there like things that happen in the brain, like um, when one is going through um, depression or anxiety? Are there like you know effects that um, the brain experiences in this process?
1: So the the um, the brain is a, a funny thing because I think for generations, we've been trying to find depression in the brain as though it were were a module or an essential thing in the brain. And -hmm. what the latest science is telling us, that that model, I think, occupied uh, decades, generations of neuroscientists. Uh, But I think what the latest science is really showing uh, is that the mind is not in the brain. The mind is what the brain does. So it's almost like think of it it as having uh, different colored beams of light uh, and that when you shine those different colors together, they'll make a new color. That color doesn't exist in any of them, but it exists in the way that they come together. Mm-hmm. And that's how the mind works. That The mind, everything that you perceive, including your feelings of depression or anxiety, mm-hmm. uh, if you're experiencing hallucinations or obsessions or ruminative thinking, all mm-hmm. of that is a cumulative process uh, of the different uh, uh, operating areas uh, of your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, we do know uh, that the old the old uh, chemical imbalance theory that used to be advanced, you know, through the '60s and '70s with the advent of uh, antidepressants. It started with Prozac, uh, give or take. Uh, that that theory, the chemical imbalance theory, really doesn't explain actually uh, depression very well. Uh, mm-hmm. People with depression have been shown, in fact, to not have any less serotonin than anybody else. Uh, That there doesn't seem to be a a serotonin imbalance or a lack of serotonin, as is still commonly said. Mm. But there does seem to be something going on with the way the brain processes, the way that it receives and processes Uh, that information uh, and those signals. Um, You know, whether it's an imbalance in excitation and inhibition in the brain, it's hard to say. Uh, There's a a significant amount of very active research, brain research, uh, happening uh, right now on what are the networks, uh, both neurological and cognitive, uh, that are implicated in depression, uh, and how do they regulate each other, Because this is something else, too, that when we feel these strong emotions, we might not have the words for them, but we can do some top-down processing. We can learn some cognitive skills that actually physically changes our brain as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been shown some research out of Cambridge University, for example, that even single session psychotherapy, one session of psychotherapy for an anxiety disorder mm-hmm. can be seen on fMRI imaging uh, of the brain, that we mm-hmm. that we sculpt our brain all the time. Uh, and uh, we can, in fact, do that Uh, with uh, top-down processing or with thinking uh, and learning and remembering things. So that's why I think it's so important to uh, learn how to recover uh, because it physically changes your brain.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So earlier you said, you know, um, depression and anxiety could be motivating for a short period of time. Like being on a treadmill, for example. So, can you explain this to me? Like, how, how can how can um, depression and anxiety motivate the person experiencing it?
1: Well, I mean, so anxiety is the is the um, more prevalent or, or the more obvious of these two ones, uh, mm-hmm. and particularly stress. Stress and anxiety aren't the same thing, but they do. I ad, I assert that they do have a lot in common. That mm-hmm. anxiety is a chronic stressed state uh and it and you see people in workplaces in particular uh who have extreme forms uh, you know anxiety and mania are different as well but let's use this example to show how it could be a it could be seen as a benefit even if it still has a lot of drawbacks people mm-hmm. who experience mania in certain industries tend to excel people who experience certain mental illnesses tend to become executives mm-hmm. uh, for example because the side of or because the um, symptoms of those illnesses are mistaken as something else, as being, you know, you're staying up 12 hours uh, a day at a time in your office working nonstop. Well, Mm. that's probably not healthy. We know it's not healthy, but you're getting rewarded for it because it's advancing you in your career. Mm. So that's one um, maladaptive way that it's been seen. Uh, But I've actually um, been discovering a way in which just my, my my trauma history, my depression has been inherently motivating for me as well in that there's this drive uh, to want to make the world different uh, from the one in which I couldn't get help. So I've been able to use my negative experiences and turn them into something else instead. In other words, to not be a victim of circumstance anymore, to not let my life happen to me but to let my life happen for me. And I think in many ways, this is growth mindset. This is the writer's mindset that you own everything that's ever happened to you. This is your material now, everything that's ever happened to you. Yeah. So what are you going to do now? What are you going to do with everything that has happened to you? I think that's what motivates me. Uh, when I, when I, um, explore my own history and my own experiences, uh, what can I use this for?
0: Mm. What can I use this for? Yes. Like being, I I love what you just said right now, like being the the master of everything that you've gone through in life. Yes. Yes.
1: I mean, you might as well. It's your resource to mine after all. You Mm -hmm. own your story. Uh, So I think that we, what's the alternative? I come back to that myself all the time Mm -hmm. and because I've experienced it so much in my life uh, and it's miserable to sit back and say, isn't it awful? What happened to me? Everything sucked. My life sucks. I wish that didn't happen. I yeah. wish we wasn't traumatized. I wish, I wish, I wish. Yeah. It should have been different. Yeah, yeah well, it wasn't. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm of the point of view uh, yeah. that that's a bit of a, uh, you know, a, uh, I, I don't know if that's a ger- that's my German coming out. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it is what it is. Um yeah. So what are you going to do now? And this comes from this idea in dialectical behavior therapy as well. I mean, I've made it much cruder than it's presented. It's presented much more eloquently in dialectical behavior therapy. Um, but this idea of acceptance and change—that mm-hmm. if you want to, if if you want to really change and grow. You have to accept the situation as it is. And that doesn't mean liking it. That doesn't mean endorsing it. It doesn't mean wishing it on anybody else or wishing for it to continue. Mm. But you have to realize, you have to accept, yeah, it is. And that's okay. It's okay that it's hard. It's okay that it was awful. Um, Now that we we accept that it is what it is, how can it be in the future?
0: Earlier, we talked about you know that the the system or the way to recovery is unique for individual, and if one does not work, if one way does not work for you, you should try another way out, and it could be non-Western, it could be Western, it could be traditional, it could be any kind of formal way. But are there like some effective ways of dealing with loneliness, depression, anxiety, and addiction?
1: Yeah, you know, I take a holistic approach to this because we know that at the macro level. Uh, everybody's brain looks more or less the same. That is to mm-hmm. say, if you were to take the brain out of my head right now and the brain out of your head, they'd look more or less the same uh, at the at the top level. Yeah. But once you start to get down to the micro level, your brain is like a fingerprint. How it wires within that more or less similar looking glob in your head, how it wires together at the microscopic level inside, is 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 individual to everybody. Yeah. Uh, that there's even ongoing research now of identifying people based on the connections. Uh, the connective patterns uh, in their brain, that they're mm. that unique. So that's, I think, the neurological basis of it. Um, the the uh, more holistic perspective, the psychological and social perspective is that Everybody has had their own personal experiences, of course, and everybody's interpreted them their own way. So I think it's not helpful to think of depression as one objective thing that's out there uh, that people get, that they catch. Uh, Even other parts of medicine don't actually work that way either, but it's comforting for us to think that it's that cut and dry and depression isn't that cut and dry, or any illness, any mental illness especially, mm. uh, that these are broad categories that a number of different things fit into. Mm. Um, so that's on the, the sort of personalized piece. Uh, right. More directly to your question, that said, there are also broad categories of treatments, evidence-based treatments that do seem to work uh, better than others. And they're treatments that have uh, that typically have been subjected to a lot of research uh, and that are refined over time by the scientific method. So cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, well, it's not the be-all, end-all for everybody. It is the gold standard uh, in terms of treatment for depression and anxiety, especially if you're doing what's called combination therapy. Which means that uh, you're taking, you're finding ideally a medication that works reasonably well for you. You're pairing it with structured psychotherapy like cognitive behavior therapy. You're doing both at the same time because they're working on two different areas of your experience. One is helping you with some of the physical symptoms, Mm -hmm. the other is helping you with the longer term coping strategies. Now, what's important about these, though, is to realize that, uh, and I think this is the next step in mental health awareness. Uh, that there are many different types of therapists out there. Not everybody practices with super strict fidelity to the models that have been researched. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a shame because uh, these interventions have been researched very thoroughly and shown to work in certain ways, but then most therapists don't actually implement them uh, in the way that they were designed. Many therapists refer to themselves as eclectic. And that's one of those words that always is a red flag for me because it's, <laughs> it's in, in my view, anyway, 90% of therapists say that their method is eclectic. Mm. I'm not looking personally, when I'm going in for therapy, I'm not looking for eclecticism. I'm looking for what works. I'm mm. looking for the, the evidence that you can show me. It might not work for me, but that's where I want to start is with the evidence. So that's why I think it's important that when you do go in for treatment, if you do choose psychologically, Therapy, And I'd strongly encourage you to do so, even if you don't think it's right for you to, to try it. Um, the, the very first step is to interview different therapists and see where the, the fit is, who you like, who you don't like. You want somebody who's going to push you, uh, but who's also going to be respectful of you as well. Therapy is supposed to be work, uh, but it's not supposed to be traumatic. You want to find a method that jives with your existing knowledge of the world uh, because if somebody comes in and tries to get you to do something that you just completely reject, then it's not going to work. You have to be able to develop that rapport, that connection connection. Uh, that trust with the therapist uh, mm-hmm. and we know that that's one of the key mechanisms of action the research has shown this as well uh, that you don't necessarily have to like your therapist they're not your friend uh, but you have to have a good rapport with them you have mm-hmm. to have a good therapeutic alliance mm-hmm. uh, and that has been shown uh, to be very uh, effective
0: at treating most mental illnesses this is, well thank you so much for sharing that yeah So I I was going to your Twitter feed um, some minutes ago, and I was reading about um, mental self-monitoring. So can can you tell me about this? What is mental self-monitoring, and how can we be more aware of our mental health?
1: So I think that many of us, we're all born, of course, with feelings. We're all born with emotions and with thoughts. Anybody who's ever encountered a little kid who screams a lot knows that kids uh, experience emotions very loudly. Uh, That's something inborn in us. What we're not born with, though, is the language for those feelings. That's Mm -hmm. something that we learn. And very often, we're not actually taught that language explicitly, although we're getting parents, I think, are a little bit better at it now than they used to be. Um, That's something that we pick up from watching others. You know, we see that this is called sad because every time somebody expresses this facial expression and Mm -hmm. says those things, somebody else calls it sad. And then Mm -hmm. little babies watch as this person comforts or doesn't uh, that person who's sad. So we absorb how we think about emotions from the minute we're we're in the world. Uh, And that's part of what really um, defines how we deal with our emotions later on as well. So Mm -hmm. learning to self-monitor, learning to um, figure out what's going on inside you starts with how you think about your emotions, uh, the words that you apply to your emotions. Mm -hmm. Um, Doing a little self-assessment, and if you realize that you only seem to have two emotions, happy and sad, uh, then that shows me that you need to work on your emotional vocabulary, Mm -hmm. on your emotional granularity. Because research has shown that people who have more fine-grained distinctions for the many, many, many different versions of emotions that we have, they tend to be mentally healthier. Because when they self-monitor, they realize, you know, if you only have happy and sad... All of these other things that might not necessarily be sadness, this pathos or this, this interest or grief or whatever the other emotion is, if you only have two buckets, all those other things are getting dumped into that same bucket. Yeah. By having more definitions, more words for our feelings, a broader thesaurus of emotions, uh, it means that we're not just dumping every, everything into the depression bucket. That yeah. might still be there, but it gets smaller and smaller the more words you have. So that's where I think self-monitoring um, starts, is learning that how to name and label your emotions effectively. Because if you can't name something, then you can't see it in yourself. And if you yeah. can't see it, you can't work with it. Um, yeah. So that's where that's where it starts. And then it comes into learning strategies. Once you identify what the emotion actually is, learning strategies to try to understand it, to listen to it, uh, and then to to let it play itself out. I think that's the next key step.
0: Yes. Wow. Thank you so much, Mark, for sharing that. So can you tell me more about the so-called normal podcast and also Living Well podcast? Like I've learned a lot from you today, so I can't I can't imagine um the value of information that you share on your podcast. So can you tell me more about these podcasts that you host and what are listeners to look out for when they listen to these podcasts?
1: Sure, my so-called normal podcast was really my effort in a long form way to have more interesting conversations about mental health. Uh, That came from a place of feeling frustrated that every time I heard somebody talking about mental health, it was always the same old stuff. It was, what what are the symptoms of depression? Uh, How do we get people on the right medication? That's boring for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm interested in what are all the other life factors that are playing into this? What's the human condition uh, Mm -hmm. of depression? So that was really my my, uh, effort in so-called normal was to explore the idea of what normal means uh, to all of these different. People of many different um, uh, sectors of society. Uh, My Living Well podcast for a company called LifeWorks, that's exploring uh, the mental, physical, financial, and social aspects of well-being. So it's taking this core idea of what does it mean to live well and approaching it from a variety of different angles. So you're taking the same question uh, with different perspectives on it, which I think is a a really important intellectual uh, and uh, um, psychological exercise to take a, a varying perspective On different issues. So all of them, I I talk with the most fascinating people I can find and and both of them and all of the episodes on both of those shows are really my effort to broaden the conversation of mental health Mm -hmm. outside of the usual clinical silo. Uh, I have very few psychiatrists. I talked to a couple, but very few psychiatrists on, the, on those shows, a couple of uh, psychologists, but not very many. Uh, it's really about getting diverse perspectives on, on mental health. So uh, Living Well is actually starting back up uh, later this month, and we've got 20 all new episodes coming out over the next few months
0: awesome so i would encourage everyone who's listening to this episode to watch out for the new episodes that are coming out on the living world podcast and also to catch up on the episode from the so-called normal podcast also and be be blessed by so much knowledge that has been shared by mark and the guests that come on the podcast also that would be so great that be so awesome so, um, can you tell me the best way to connect and work with you? Like for someone out there who's you know still interested to knowing more about you or to even work directly with you, what's the best way to do that?
1: Well, I'm not very hard to find. My, I'm on most social media platforms at Mark Henick at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K. My website is Uh I've got my book, A So-Called Normal, A Memoir of Family Depression and Resilience. So if you really want to get to know me, that's, mm-hmm. that's my whole upbringing right there. That's my whole <laughs> self in there. Yeah. Uh, and that's available worldwide on Amazon and through most other major book retailers uh, around the world.
0: Yes. I, I, will, I will encourage everyone to get the, the best-selling book <laughs> and, get, and read it and see, um, you know, what values as in one can get out of the book from it. Thank you so much for everything you've taught me in this episode. I really appreciate you sharing your story about your mental health challenges, the suicide attempts, and how you are able to survive it, and how we are even, you know, on the path of recovery. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Mark. Thank you for having me. Wow, you made it to the very end of this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I'm grateful for your time, your love, and your contributions. Subscribe, like, review, and share this podcast. God bless you. Bye.